Future CEOs, Big Brand CEO Thursdays. So you want to be a CEO? Sure, go ahead, read your ABCs of managing book. Or if you really want to be a CEO, then keep on listening to this Future CEOs podcast with your host, Gareth Armstrong, as he gets you up close and personal with real-world CEOs thought leaders, and industry experts to learn from their experiences and the insight and wisdom they've gained while leading in these challenging and ever-changing times. Are you ready? Then let's do this. Hi, I'm Gareth Armstrong and welcome to Future CEOs. A short while ago, I was able to sit with Lynn Maidley, the CEO of Havas Southern Africa. In what was a fascinating conversation, I really got the feeling and sense that Lynn has come to a point where she is really beginning to understand who she is and as a result of that, is a very confident leader and CEO. It was a great pleasure spending time with her and I hope that you take away as much from this conversation as I did. Here it is now. Lynn Maidley, CEO of Havas Southern Africa. Welcome to Future CEOs. It's good to have you. Thank you. Now, we're not really here to talk about Havas, but let's uh, just do maybe a little brief introduction on what Havas is, what you guys do, who you are, if you don't mind. I will do that for you gladly. So Havas is the sixth largest communications group on a global basis. Um, we handle clients such as uh, RB, which used to be called Reckitt Benkiza. Um, here we handle clients such as Total, Nativa, PPS, and a whole raft of, of other clients as well. Mm -hmm. um, we work across the creative side, which is sort of what would be termed above the line, which would be TV, radio, outdoor, print, um, digital, as well as obviously just part of the mix now. We have a PR business, we have a media business, um, and we have a sports and entertainment business as well. Mm. Oh, that's quite a, a responsibility then. Yeah, it is quite a responsibility. And in fact, in one of the questions that you've written, you talk about sort of the first time you became a CEO, what happens to you? And yeah. it was absolute fear. I'd, I'd wanted a job. I was sitting in Botswana. I'd, I was desperate to have this MD's job. Couldn't understand why I hadn't got it. And there was a whole long story to that. Got offered the job and went out that evening to I think it was Mike's kitchen for some reason and sat there feeling terrified and the terror was that I suddenly was 100% responsible for people's jobs. <laughs> and that is a major, major responsibility and weight to have to carry. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, perhaps uh, maybe just a little bit about your journey then. Where, where did it all begin for you? I, I think I, I fell into advertising and marketing, and I think that happens quite often. Okay. Um, when I was uh, – I, I had two careers. Right. Um, I'm a professional horse rider. All right. Um, but I happen to be in advertising now, and there's a, a whole journey to that. Um, when I was 16, I went for a walk with my aunt and said that I was really very keen on working in advertising. And mm. at the time, Saatchi and Saatchi was a very big name. It was very romantic and very glamorous. And she said to me, you can't go into advertising. It's for liars and cheats. All right. So I didn't go into advertising. Um, I stayed on my sort of career track going into horses, which upset my father enormously. Because mm. um, no daughter of his was going to go and muck out stables. Well, his daughter very happily and very successfully mucked out stables oh, right. for quite a while. What, what, what was he by profession, by the way, or trade? He, he, was, a, he was in the, the fashion business. Okay, yeah. all right. So. Yeah, and a very big influence on my life. Huge right. influence, on, or on my career at least. Mm. Um, he was definitely my phone a friend for a very, very long time. In spite of the fact that he didn't uh, quite uh, approve. Yeah, well, the horses I never asked him very much about because he really couldn't help me. But when I went into marketing, <laughs> sure. he definitely, definitely could. Sure. Yeah. Um, then you, sorry, I interrupted your story. So, yeah, you, you were talking about sort of how I got to where I got to. So I, I started off in the sports world and I, I think for a number of years I'd sort of I'd ride horses and my brain would then get bored and I'd go into a marketing job and then my body would get bored. So I'd go back into a into a role with horses. I, mm. I started my career in London um, working for FC UK or French Connection, as it was then known. I then moved to Hong Kong. 
um, because my parents moved there and they sort of bought me a, a they bought me a, a 10 day holiday and I stayed for 13 years. <laughs> um, okay. So I was in Hong Kong for a long time and I worked for the Jockey Club and I worked for Saatchi and Saatchi and a couple of other agencies out there as well. Um, and I got married and then I ended up in Botswana because my husband was a Hong Kong banker who then transferred because of De Beers to okay. Botswana got to Botswana and wasn't quite sure what to do with myself, went to a headhunter and said, I really don't mind what I do. I have to do something and I prefer to work for a name. Mm. Um, and I worked for Ogilvy sure. and became MD there. And um, then just got a little bit stifled, I think, by such a small population um, and started to look at where else I could go. And... Uh, South Africa, New York, and London were on the cards. Sure. And I love South Africa, and I kind of decided that's where I wanted to go and, and came down here, and that was 10 years ago. Okay, very nice. So you have this restlessness inside of you. Uh, how is the restlessness – how, how are the feelings at the moment? Is this uh, – do you see yourself here for a while yet? Yes, I do. I, I mean – Johannesburg, South Africa is now my home. Mm. I have a partner here. My son is 16 and at school here. Um, so I absolutely do. I love South Africa. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Sure. The crime frustrates me enormously. And mm. as one of my colleagues who came out from Spain said to me, if you didn't have the crime, South Africa would be paradise. Mm. And I think that's part of my frustration. And then I suddenly realize that I'm becoming terribly grown up because I consider going into politics so that I can change things. <laughs> really? okay. um, and then I realize I don't have the time to go into politics. But sure. you, you kind of get to that point where you go, if only I could change this. Mm. And you look at things like Rudy Giuliani and what he did in New York. And, you know, is there a way of step repeating that in sort of parts of, of Johannesburg and, and other places where the crime is rife? It's just such a complex problem. So you're a doer then. And that's what I hear, hear oh, yeah. you saying you're, a, you're yep. a doer yep i have been described as a self-starter before now <laughs> okay well that's a that's a nice way to describe a doer um let's then talk a little bit about your this journey to a ceo uh, and let, let's begin the conversation with this question what does it take to be a ceo in, in your view and from your experience i uh, i think it takes um i think it takes absolute self-belief with a complete fear of failure. Those absolute, two combined. Absolute self-belief with a? Complete fear of failure. That's very interesting. So I think you have to have this kind of strange complexity about you that you totally believe in where you're going, but you are really frightened of not getting there. And I think that keeps you driven. Mm. I think you have to be energetic. I think you have to be passionate but at the same time compassionate and i think that compassion comes a little bit more with age yeah. i don't think i would have liked to have worked for me 15 years ago sure. i i think working for me now is probably a lot more pleasant and even then it probably isn't pleasant all of the time <laughs> um you have to be focused and you have to keep yourself focused and that takes enormous discipline mm. um i think you have to trust where you're going in in your business life and in your own personal life, if they do ever, if you ever have a personal life. Um, You've raised a, an interesting point because you used a, a very interesting word, which is you have to trust, trust where you are going. Now, how do you, how do you develop trust in where you're going? How do you learn to trust where you're going? Well, I think you either are extremely arrogant mm -hmm. and therefore probably very ignorant and that you have this sort of, pathological self-belief or i think through experiences that you have had you've learned how to win coming from a sporting background i learned how to win mm. when i started off i didn't win anything of course you don't you're not good enough to win and you learn that by hard work and training and experience you start winning starts to become a habit and so when winning becomes a habit then you have lots of confidence and when you have lots of confidence you win even more sure. and you actually start to learn to trust in your ability mm. and i think that 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 enormous depth of experience that i got from sport has really really manifested in the last 10 years in helping me do what i do and i, I draw on it every single day mm. no 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 very interesting uh, the best 
definition of confidence that I've ever come across is this, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, and just maybe you can reflect on it in, in terms of what you've just said as well, and you can share with us. But th- that confidence is trusting in processes that work, or trusting in processes that uh, lead to a successful outcome time and time again. Um, mm. I think it's habits. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I say that I'm not a process person. And then when you say that, I realize that I absolutely am a process person in terms of habit. Mm. So I don't necessarily want to look at a flowchart because that will bore me to tears and I won't really be able to give you any input in it. But in terms of knowing how to, for instance, run a meeting or know that something is going to take me two hours or know it's going to take me three days and know that I'm going to go through a process where I'm really not sure where I'm going and that's kind of okay mm-hmm. and I can still kind of hang on to the fact that I know that I will get there because I've done it before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's a process. Yeah, there is a process relying. there, absolutely. Okay, lovely. I think there's a couple of people in my office that would roll eyes if they heard me say that I did believe in process because I tell them I don't. But anyway, <laughs> clearly I do. <laughs> well, well, that that's okay. They can um, <laughs> think that. I, you mentioned something very interesting, of course, and that is part of your developmental journey, t- part of what Sporters has taught you. Uh, what other early influences have there been in your life that have really, uh, really helped you to become who you are today? I think one of the, from a career perspective, I think the biggest influence other than sport was my father. I mean, you know, and, and as much as we, we still talk business, we probably don't, don't speak it in the same way that we used to, where I was very much kind of talking to the master. Mm. I think one of the huge advantages that I had that when my father wasn't traveling, we would always have dinner together. I would always hear anecdotally about his day. Sure. Um, he never had a good day, and I joke with him about that all the time. He's never once come home from the office and said it was good. It was always a drama. Mm. But the fact was he would then tell us around the table what his drama was, and you learnt from a, from a kind of organic way. You just kind of by osmosis, you learnt about business. So you learnt about managing people because he would kind of discuss issues that he had with colleagues or bosses or people who work for him. Sure. He would... Uh, he would do things like say to me, I'm not paying for the lunch that the auditors took me to. They can take that off the bill. So I kind of learned that it was okay to negotiate with the big five. Mm-hmm. Um, he taught me um, about the, the way that you would handle different colors. He was in fashion. So he would taught me about how you would deal with different colors in different seasons. So there was a huge amount of information that just... I just gathered along the way. And Mm. then the great part of it was that when I got stuck or when I needed an opinion and a really safe place to go, I could go to him and say, dad, what do you think? And he would either say to me, I think you're being a blithering idiot or yes, you've got a point and this is how I would handle it. Or actually, I don't know how to do that. I suggest you pick up the phone to the lawyers, Mm. you know, that kind of thing. So it was massively helpful to me. It sounds like uh, in many ways he was a mentor, but uh, someone that would say it as it was or as it is uh, really giving you the hard truth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't think, I don't think um, any parent should couch it in a way that's soft i think they should tell you how it is it's a safe place Mm. they're telling you from a point of whether it's tough love or ordinary love it doesn't matter it's important that that kind of relationship you can have and i think with with your close staff and close colleagues you have to be able to have that relationship as well Mm, very good point so you let's fast forward a little bit um and you become a young executive you have these resources available to you Uh, But what would you, or if I was to ask you then to share a potential mistake that you made and the biggest lesson you learned, what, what, what would you be willing to share with us? I don't think I was that young when my big, my big failure happened. All right. Um, In fact, I'd always been terribly lucky and wherever I'd gone, I was the shining star. I was on the board Mm. within kind of nanoseconds you know, and I was, in my own mind, actually, untouchable. Oh, right, okay. And the the lesson that I learnt was that actually I could fail, and I could fail quite badly, and I think what happened was I ended up going into the job that I had, and I ended up demanding 
respect rather than earning it. I kind of was like, but you must listen to me. I've got this big title and therefore I don't have to work very hard to get your respect. Mm. And I fell over and I fell over in a big way. And it was the biggest lesson I have ever learned and the best lesson I've ever learned. I, I firmly believe you learn more from failure than you do from success but you've got to learn how to deal with that failure in a positive way sure i think in silicon valley they they have that mantra to fail and fail fast and yeah. that's really because of the lessons that you learned so you've shared about uh, you shared about the respect that you were demanding any particular instance that you could share with us yeah i mean i would i mean you know i'm in the creative business and i am what is called I was a strategic planner, but I became what's called a a suit or an account management person. Mm. And my feeling was that the relationship with the the client was mine and therefore what I said went. And that's not true because there are other people in your own company who have an opinion that you need to take cognizance of and listen to. And and what what happened to me was I manifested as the client in the agency. And that's not right because you're actually there to get the best work out of the agency, not the kind of work that the client will definitely buy. You Mm. have to – we're paid to push things a bit. And if I'm sitting there constantly restricting the creative process because I'm going, oh, no, the client won't like that, yeah. I'm not doing my job. And I frustrated some really, really top talented creative people in an attempt to please the client. But actually, that didn't please the client because the client also can see when you don't get on well with your colleagues. Mm, sure. And that's not good. No, not not good at all, I don't think, in any kind of instance. Mm. The... So you are then in a situation where um, you're learning these lessons. Again, you've got these resources, but now we also have other resources here. We've got books that have been written. We've got academia, um, professors, doctors, and so on uh, coming out of our ears telling us how to run businesses. Would you say that um, what they share is accurate or not? What aren't leadership or management books teaching about being a CEO? I dislike academic uh, leadership books intensely. Okay, great. Um, we I've, really want your, opinion, your, your <laughs> input here then. I've started my MBA twice and I do follow through, but I didn't follow through with my MBA mm. because I think it restricts your thinking. And I think as a senior leader, you have to be able to think creatively and you have to be flexible, but sometimes you need to be rigid. So I think it stifles thinking. Um, and I think you, you need experience because actually, you know, we've all got similar IQs, let's be honest. Sure. It's the EQ side. It's being able to read a room. It's being able to motivate people. It's being able to get the best out of people. That's what our job is as leaders. It's not really about understanding that, you know, the Boston Consulting Group four squares are this and this is a, a sort of cash cow. It doesn't matter. Mm. You don't need that process to understand what's going on in your business so my feeling about the academic books is that they're not great at all i mean you look at good to great which is just a classic because you've got fanny may and all sorts of other businesses that were being heralded as these amazing things and roll on 2008 and they're not anymore and good to great really is kind of defunct so ah I don't buy into them at all. No, no, no. I, I, I agree I, with you. I do buy. I mean, I the I was very lucky. Havas sent me to Wharton to the business school there um, for a leadership program, and you kind of have no idea what to expect, and you kind of go in armed with your calculator, convinced that they're going to ask you to look at really complex problems and balance sheets and sure. tell them what they what they're saying. And actually, it was about EQ. Mm. And uh, there's a guy there who was called Chuck Dwyer. I don't know if he's still there. And he basically said, everybody is about what's in it for me. Mm. And once we understand that we all are in everything that we do because of that, it's cool. And at the same time, he's like, but you have to leave your ego at the door because otherwise your ego is quite toxic and it it influences how you think in quite a bad way often and it stops you being 
sensible and logical and coming to the right conclusion for your business. Mm. It ends up being the right decision for you, which probably isn't the right decision for the business, which probably means it's not the right decision for you either. So really big learnings there. And the fact that it's good to feel what we do as leaders is feel more than anything else. Marco Tufani, I sat with him a while ago, the CEO of Anglo-American, and he used this one phrase, and every now and then I'll take, or rather let me say it this way, whenever I sit with any CEO or, or top leader, there always seems to be just that one thing that I, that I take away, um, because there's lots of repetition certainly um, across uh, good executives. And he said, leadership is all about people. And I'll never forget that. And I think that's what I hear you yeah. saying here. Uh, it is. That yeah. It is. EQ is people. Mm. Would you say that you are, how far along in, on the EQ journey are you? <laughs> uh, I have good days and bad days. Sure. Um, I, I think that I am a sensor. I definitely am very aware of how people feel. Um, I sometimes get very frustrated with people um, and impatient. And unfortunately, as a colleague of mine once said, was never try and play poker, Lynn, because you are really bad at it. (laughs) Um, So I'm kind of learning slowly, day by day. And I think the the truth of it is when you're stressed, your bad habits come out. Mm. When you're not stressed, they don't. And it is a little bit like you talking about that process at the very beginning. You know, we have to learn how to keep certain behaviors in check because as a CEO, you're a really big influence on situations. And sometimes I don't think we're necessarily aware of the power that we have Mm. and how much we can really demotivate people and stress them when we actually don't mean to and don't need to. So I think there's, you know, it's all very well sort of saying, you know, I'm not that important. Well, okay, fine. I'm not that important, but to me, my boss is incredibly important to me and I want to please him all the time. And therefore that's what other people do too. It's just human nature. So when as a boss, you say to someone, well done, that was fantastic. We know how that makes us feel as people. We have bosses too. It's awesome. When you get slapped, it's not great and Mm. it does demotivate you. And if you do it too many times, that person is probably not going to be in your business for very much longer. And that's probably not what you want. You probably want to try and keep them. I sat actually yesterday with um, Gil Ovid. Now, he, if you're familiar with him, he's one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of the Creative Council. And they, they're doing some very impressive things. And um, he said that the biggest mistake that he made in his early in his career, now, of course, he has a very interesting one where it's entrepreneur to CEO. That was really his, his journey. Uh, he said that, the biggest mistake is that he didn't try and employ the best people. So if, you, if you've employed the best people but you're treating them poorly, uh, you, you're in for a bit of an interesting ride because they will be taken by someone else, hunted by someone else. I think it's interesting when, when you say he didn't employ the best people. Uh, it was a cost thing, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand exactly where it comes from. Um, I think that I have a habit of employing... Um, I would describe them, and this goes back to my my world of horses, as the difficult horse with lots of potential. Sure. Um, And I'm learning slowly that actually that's not a very good idea Mm. because there is a – there's an inconsistency often in that person who's got very high potential – but is difficult way of behaving and businesses actually can't really cope with that. Mm. So I've learned I'm not very good at it. I I tend to always think that Havas will create this amazing atmosphere and this person is going to thrive and grow and be brilliant and we're going to give them all of the tools that they need. But actually, often you're better off with someone who is just a little bit more steady in their approach and they will actually deliver better than the person that's high potential but actually i suppose in a way be called high maintenance Mm. um and i've i've fallen over a couple of times trying to do that okay very interesting thank you for sharing that additional additional little piece so we're talking about some learning here you've mentioned it a little bit before as well a light bulb moment 
or maybe multiple light bulb moments. What were they in terms of your your journey from uh, or, or through the ranks to becoming a CEO? I think it goes back, and I said it at the very beginning, that light bulb moment was suddenly realizing that I was 100% responsible for people's jobs. Yeah. Uh, it was huge for me. I mean, it was really kind of like that feeling of kind of almost being smacked in the chest and you go, oh, I, I've, I've wanted this forever. I've wanted to be 100% responsible for a company with shareholders overseas and they don't, you know, they don't get involved and they leave me alone. And then suddenly you're there mm. and it's incredibly lonely. It really is incredibly lonely and it is genuinely frightening and you are aware that every decision that you make and the amount of work that you put in affects maybe to start off with 20 people and then 30 people and then 500 people. Not and necessarily in, uh, taking into consideration the extensions of those people, their, yeah. their spouses, their yeah. children, and, and, and. It's, it's nasty. Hmm. Um, and I think that that is why it is so important to do everything that you can to build a strong business it's not your yes you're building it for your shareholders of course you are but actually more than that you're building it for the people that you see every day who you know have got kids and fathers and mothers and things that they need to look after that's that's massive to mm. me let's quickly talk a little bit about coping with loneliness then because that's something that you've highlighted was one of the things that you maybe did deal with and maybe are dealing with at the moment as well. How have you coped with that? How, do we have to be lonely in this position? I think, I think to a point you need to be lonely. Mm. I think that, yes, of course, I have a fantastic executive team around me and they are amazing and I share a huge amount of information with them. But there are times when you can't and I don't think you should. So... It's very easy, you know, in our jobs as, as a chief exec, you're often dealing with people issues and that's really sensitive. Now, sure, I can take a senior manager aside and say, what do you think about this and what do you think we should do? But often it's not appropriate behavior and mm. often you need to make sure that you keep the counsel between yourself and the person that's, that you're dealing with because, again, it's a trust issue. Um, so I think that's difficult. I think there are things that happen within the business that you need to assimilate, first of all, and be able to at least make a recommendation on before you involve your executive team. Sure. Because you're there. It's a little bit like the sort of the I mean, I, I do use Alex Ferguson. And no, I'm not a Manchester United supporter at all. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think he was a fantastic leader. Sure. If you look at his last couple of seasons, he didn't really have a very good team. But what he did give them was confidence and self-belief. Mm -hmm. He did that. And you look at the managers that have come after that. It, <laughs> The, the thing that changed was he's not there anymore. Exactly. And, and it's that simple and their success factor has gone down. So the leader of the team is critical to the success of the organization. And if we go around saying, I don't know what to do, then you bet your bottom dollar that the rest of your team don't know what to do and you frighten them. Mm. So you might be able to go back to them and say, look, we've got this problem. We can solve it, I think, in this way, this way, or this way. What do you think? What's your opinion? Fine, but at least you've given some structure to it. You've got a way forward before they, you, you've given them the problem to deal with. You're, you're balancing out very nicely this idea that you always have to be very democratic in your approach, always have to be very inclusive. Uh, I think that you're not saying you mustn't be, but that you must definitely have a position that you occupy before you take it to the team. Yeah, and I, and I believe that because otherwise you're not giving structure and we all deal better sitting inside some kind of a box. Sure. So on the one hand, you're saying perhaps we shouldn't be sharing as as openly with our team as, as we um, might want to are you a fan of third parties who are perhaps neutral sharing with them and getting their advice maybe call them mentors call them peer conversations i think i sometimes share things with my husband and um and he will often say to me i don't know why you've asked me 
my opinion because you've already decided. Okay. okay. Um, and so I think it is, it is natural for a chief executive to have come to some kind of, not necessarily a, a sort of set in stone decision, but mm. at least a point of view. And I think that's what it is. I, I do absolutely believe in sharing. I don't believe in keeping things back from people. But I think you've got to get the timing right and you've got to frame it correctly. So if I just sit there and go to someone, we've got this mother of a problem and I really don't know what to do about it. That's not great leadership. That's, that's not being a leader at all, as opposed to we've got this problem and we can solve it this way or this way or this way. Suddenly you're still in control of the situation. People expect and want their chief executive to be in control. Mm. Um, shall we call it a, a tribe or a pack leader? Yeah. People really it's, do respond to that, don't it's, they? It is being, it's the alpha dog. It's the best way I can describe it. Lynn, please then finish the sentence for me. Uh, as a CEO, as a chief executive, my highest priority every day is to ensure? That people are inspired. You're going to have to open that, or ex unpack that a little <laughs> bit for us. So... Whether it's a client or someone who works for you or a supplier, if you get them to a point where they are genuinely engaged in what they are doing, then they will do it really well. And I think that there is a difference between being inspired and motivated. Mm. And I think one leads into the other. So I think if you are inspired, you are then motivated to, to do things. And you said to me earlier that I was a doer. I think it's all very well saying, oh, that was really inspirational. It was a really inspirational painting that I looked at, but it's not necessarily motivating me to paint. Mm. And that's what we need to do. So we need to create the environment of being inspired. And whether that's because you really just want to do something for somebody because you know that you're going to get praised for it at the end of the day, sure. or whether it's because you want to do something because you're going to win an award, it doesn't matter. You've got to find the right buttons to press for your environment that's around you mm. okay very nice answer what's the best advice you've ever received i think and this is very early on in my career i think the best advice that i ever received was keep your head down and graft keep your head down and graft yeah. okay and who shared it with you one of my trainers um and i was going off to a big sporting academy and it was really nerve-wracking, mm. really, really nerve-wracking. You're kind of going in as the, the kind of baby of the team and you've got to prove yourself and all those sorts of things. And I think that's what happens when you go into new jobs as well. And I think that people seeing you prepared to work hard is really important yes it's about output of course it is and you know we can talk a lot about oh you know do you actually have to kind of work the 12 hour days to kind of get to the results and people will say i don't need to do that i think you do mm. i think you you know i might not be sitting in the office but even if i'm out running or cycling my brain is working on my business. It's not working on me. It's working on my business. And sure. I think that you have to have that, that passionate level of engagement in whatever it is that you're doing to be really successful. Define passion. You've used this, this um, word now, passionate level of engagement. What do you mean by passion? Can it, you define it? It's about an energy. I really think, you know, if you walk into a room and you have a, a big energy about you, I'm not talking about something that's hyper, but this, it's a positive attitude. It is about being incredibly confident. And I think it's about being really interested in people and situations around you. Mm, I like that. I like what you've just said. They're being very interested that, that um, really hits home for me. The, the reason I say that is because I'm an introvert, and so this idea of big energy really exhausts me as I sit here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, both. Both, okay. Um, so I'm an extrovert, but really deep down I'm probably an introvert. Okay. Less right. so as I've got older. All right. So extroverted introvert, that's what you are. All right. I see. I'm an ENTP, according to Myers-Briggs. Oh, is that? Uh, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good combination. 
What one habit would you then ascribe or attribute to your success then? Uh, I, I hear hard work. You are a doer. There's no doubt. I mean, just from hearing what you're, you're saying. Uh, are there habits beyond hard work or a habit? Um, it might sound a bit silly, but I think one of the things that's really important is getting out of bed early. Mm. I think it's that whole thing of, you know, carpe diem, seize the day, be enthusiastic. Assume that you will find a great solution. Okay, very nice. I like these, I like these powerful or power-packed statements <laughs> that um, it doesn't make a great conversation, but it certainly <laughs> <laughs> drives <Sorry>. something <laughs> home. No, no, thank you for it. Your three pillars of CEO, lead- CEO leadership? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the pillars of CEO leadership is quite a difficult one because I was sort of sitting there and sort of mulling it over. And, and I suppose I think the first thing you've got to do is work very hard at being, I suppose, what would be termed a visionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the way to be visionary is to look at what's going on in the world and everything that's new. I mean, Havas talks about itself being very much about being future first. And I think that's one of the things that attracted me to the business is it definitely doesn't live in the now. It it lives in the next, I won't say more than two years because I think the world's moving so fast to live any more than two years is impossible. But, you know, so I think being future first and having that vision and, and not being afraid of, changing the way that things are done is a good thing. I think we can get stuck and we can go, well, we've always done it like that. And, and that's why I often think that those first three months in a job are probably when you are at your most useful mm. because you're helicoptering and you're not involved in the minutiae and you can just kind of like say, well, hang on a minute, why are you doing it like that? And everyone goes, well, because I've always done it like that. And you go, well, it doesn't make sense. And they go, you know what, you're right, it doesn't. So I think that's very important. And I think, and I don't do it enough. I do try probably every three months or so, take myself out of the business for a day or two Mm. and just go and think. And that sounds really stupid and something that sort of CEOs can do in some very lavish hotel somewhere. And I don't go to lavish hotels and do it, but just somewhere where you can calmly, without the interference of the day, uh, getting on top of you just think about where you believe that the business should go sure and i think one of the it's a bit of a cheat i suppose but one of the the things that is great for south africa is that we can look at what's happened in north america or in europe sure and learn from that and slightly leapfrog um so we've we've kind of got learnings around us all the time and there's a huge amount of information out there now i mean you know it always used to be you had to go to conferences and things to learn things you don't you just use google and ted talks really yeah, exactly. and you'll be fine and of course future ceos interviews and podcasts right? Uh, absolutely yes <laughs> yes because i'm terribly worthwhile listening to um so i think that's kind of one pillar um We've mentioned it a lot that relationships are important. I don't believe that there are many chief executives that um, aren't reasonably affable. I think there are some um, who can be kind of a bit stern and aloof and all of those sorts of things. But I think that's normally when they feel that they're talking to people who don't matter to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that everybody matters, but anyway... um, So I think being affable, being, and I said it earlier, being interested in people is really important because that's kind of what makes the world go around. I mean, I know money makes the world go around, but it's actually people that spend money. So that's what makes relationships important. And then I think that the, the, it's all very well kind of having the vision and being able to talk to people. But the biggest thing is you've got to make sure you can do it. You've got to execute. If you can't execute, you might as well, I'm going to be very rude actually and say you might as well be a management consultant because, and I've been a management consultant. Management consultants don't execute. They come up with the great thinking. They tell you everything that you're doing wrong. They tell you how to do it right, but they don't put it right. And what happens is that the management consultant comes in, you spend a fortune, you get a massive great deck from them. It goes in a cupboard And five years later, you get another management consultant in to say very similar things because the biggest problem is you haven't done that one thing you need to do. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. 
there are going to be some of our listeners who struggle to execute. Can you give maybe just a, a small strategy or, or personal view on how to? Write a things to do list. All right, so simple it's as that. It's that simple. And, and to be honest with you, I have three books. I have the notebook that is kind of goes to the meetings and I don't use iPads and I'll come on to why. Mm-hmm. Um, it writes down, even if it's a thought that I have in a meeting about something else, that gets written down and things that I need to do. That then gets changed into another book, which is the things to do list. And then there's the list of the things I need to do that day, which sits in another book. Okay. And within reason... I don't go home until I've done the things on the to-do that day list. Mm. Sometimes it happens, of course it does, but it's it's that discipline which is really important. And there may be two things on the, the things to do today list, but they get done. Sure. You don't use a tablet or an iPad? So I don't use an iPad. And, and there's a, a, a recent study done by Harvard which actually says that I think it's something like if you read off a tablet, if you read a book off a tablet – you only remember 30% of it compared to if you read it as a document. Okay. And um, I find, and a lot of people that I've now been sort of socialising this with say exactly the same thing. When it's important, we print it out. So we inherently know that our brain actually doesn't compute as well when we're looking at a screen. Mm than if we're looking at a piece of paper. So I think that's the other thing. is that, I mean, I've, always, I've been saying until the last couple of weeks when this study came out, I've been saying, we must be paperless, we must be this, we must all work off screens and be terribly modern, even though I was printing yeah, things was out that, were, it, that I needed it, to read. Sure. And then you realise that actually it doesn't make sense. And I find that if you're sitting in a meeting and you're trying to make notes on, a, on a, a, some kind of tablet... You're concentrating on making the notes. You're not concentrating on listening to what's happening in the meeting. Mm-hmm. So good old paper and pen. I, know, I like it. And um, if you're really bored in the meeting, you can then do what, what's the, the right word? Doodle a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Or go and think about something else. I think that's the other thing is like we often and particularly for me, because I'm clearly a type A personality and I'm very good at jumping in and annoying everybody. But if you just write notes to yourself of things that you want to say and when it's appropriate, you can say them. And sometimes someone else is going to say them anyway. Mm. And my job is to develop people, not to develop me. So best I wait and see if it gets said. And if it doesn't get said, okay, fine, then I will will say something. But Mm. it's having that little bit of patience. And I think that comes after a few years, not glasses of wine. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yes. I'll <laughs> emphasize that point. No, thank, thanks for sharing. All right. Well, then we have discussed your dislike for the academic view of leadership. Um, into my next question, what should our future CEOs community be studying over and above the, for, the formal qualifications that are available, which may include, in some instances, an undergraduate degree, or there are going to be those who are busy with the, a master's like an MBA. Uh, what should they be studying beyond that, though? I think uh, one of the, the – and it's a fairly new area. It, it was called sports psychology. Mm-hmm. It's now called performance coaching. I think that is a really critical area to not necessarily study, but to have a coach. So we talk a lot. I mean, we talk about healthy Havas and we talk about being healthy in Havas and we kind of put that into quadrants. And, And yes, part of that is about physical. But the other thing that none of us ever think about is keeping our brains fit. Sure. Um, and yet, actually, what we're all paid for is our brain more than our body. So, mm-hmm. you know, we say, oh, well, you can de-stress in the gym. Yes, you can de-stress in the gym, but can you actually make your brain work better in the gym? Yeah, maybe to a point. But actually, if you have a performance coach, you are going to get better results. Mm-hmm. So I think um, having some kind of performance coach is a really good idea. I think that understanding EQ and how people tick and to an extent sort of neurolinguistics but let's be honest that can also get quite academic sure. is important you know that's that's what we do mm, okay very very that's a valuable uh, contribution thank you so do you have any books that go along with with um, that advice 
Any books that you'd recommend maybe beyond that even? Yeah, I mean, I, I, nothing, no. Things I do read are academic. Um, so do you sit there, read the academic stuff and say, no, that doesn't apply and you put a line through it? I mean, no. Um, I mean, there are, there are a lot of books on talent management that I do read. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think biographies and autobiographies are really valuable. So as much as it's really cliche, Steve Jobs biography, I think that's phenomenal because mm. it teaches you about a maverick and it teaches you about self-belief of the extreme. Um, Andre Agassi's book, Open, teaches you about just hard work and mm. and really some brutal things that happened in his life, really brutal, that he overcame. Mm. So I think there's a lot to be learned from from biographies and autobiographies. Yeah, I'll get into the head of those who have come before and, and learn some of the lessons, made yeah, some of the mistakes. Definitely. And, and, and frankly, by the end of the day, when you've really been using your brain all day long, they're a little bit easier to digest than sitting there reading something that's academic. No, no, I, I agree 100% <laughs> and I think everyone listening does. We're actually coming to the very quickly to the end of our conversation here, maybe just a, a question or or two more before we part company. And here's a good one. If you could go back in time and speak to the 20-year-old ambitious future CEO you, what would you say to yourself? What counsel would you give yourself? I think when you are 20 years old, it is all about you. And I think the big piece of advice that I would give is put yourself into that second position. So see it from the other person's point of view, whether it's a colleague, whether it's a client, whether it's your boss, whether it's someone who works for you and understand it from their point of view and then be able to manage the situation based on that. And I think when you're 20 years old, it's you're just not mature enough to do it. Mm. And if you can try and teach people that earlier, they will be better at what they do. I think, you know, one of the one of the best pieces of advice that I got, and I, I sort of spoke about this a little bit earlier, but one of the best pieces of advice that I got was really look at it from your boss's point of view, try and make their day easier and make them look better. Mm-hmm. So act the job above you without trying to get that job but just act the job above you and you'll get it mm. a very very good point uh just quickly i think the other words uh to summarize what the, the um particular skill that you're talking about we're talking about empathy we're talking about a compassionate perspective yeah. or point of view these are the words that um, others may be able to relate to mm. Yeah, but without being without being soft, I don't think for any moment. Though I say that you know compassion is important and empathy, I don't think anyone who has ever worked with me and works with me now would say that I am soft. I don't think I am. I think I'm sometimes brutally honest, but I I believe that's the right way to go, even if I do understand where they're coming from. A very um, quick question, one that I I haven't um, given you there, but. Um, it, because you mentioned being hard, not being soft, it, it has, it's going to come up. It needs to come up and come out here. As a woman, yes, that, <laughs> it, was all, it, it needed to, to be. Um, what would your advice be to young entrepreneur, entrepreneurs or executives who are, are, are female and who feel the need to maybe compromise who they are because they feel like they're in a male-dominated environment or world? I don't believe for one moment that you should alter your behavior because you are a woman. Mm. And let me explain this, and it's a fairly contentious point of view. So if I am in a situation where I have a colleague called John and another colleague called Jill, Mm -hmm. and there's a meeting at 3 o'clock, And both of those people could be at a cricket match with their child. John wouldn't say anything and he wouldn't go. Jill might try and go or would moan that she can't go. Mm. That's not okay. So if we want to have a level playing field as women 
in what's always deemed a man's world, and I don't actually believe that it is. And I agree with you. Then we've got to play by the same rules. And we can't say, oh, but I'm a mother, therefore, because why can't John say, well, I'm a father, therefore? Mm. So if your company culture is that you don't go and watch your child play cricket then frankly male or female you don't go and watch your child play cricket now at Havas we have a culture where you do whether you're Mm. male or female you are more than welcome to go and watch your child play cricket because that's what we believe in and that's not because I'm a woman by any stretch of the imagination so I, I think women create their own glass ceiling by expecting to be treated differently to their colleagues and perhaps then behaving differently because of that expectation yeah. or that glass ceiling yeah. that they've created. Yeah, and, and it's like, and I, I've had colleagues say to me, oh, but I'm a mother. And I say, yes, so am I. But, you know, deal with it because my husband's a father. So what? Mm. No, very good point. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. Any last words to our future CEO community, our listeners? Yes, I I think always aim high, but never assume that you're going to get the next job. You've got to keep working. And I think, I do believe that hard work is important, but it does need to be intelligent hard work. Mm. So the kid that writes the 15-page essay that's badly written, that's incredibly boring, but is longer than anybody else's, isn't going to get the great mark that the kid gets when he's asked to talk about the cricket match and he, all he writes is rain stop play. Mm. So be brilliant, absolutely, but be prepared to put in the hours. Lynn, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing with us. We really appreciate you and um, all the best for you here at Havas. Thank you very much. That was Lynn Maidley, the CEO of Havas Southern Africa. If you would like to make contact with them, you will find their contact details on the summary page on our website. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and as usual, it has been a pleasure being with you. Thanks for joining us today on Future CEOs, and we hope you're feeling inspired and ready to take action. Head over to future-ceos.com for show summaries, recaps, articles, and other resources aimed at fast-tracking your rise to CEO status to make it even easier for you. Simply sign up for our weekly newsletter and we'll keep you up to date on all interviews, special guest appearances, new developments, and more.